Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption. This is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! Good afternoon and happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah to all our Jewish listeners and friends. Uh, I was talking to a gentleman today who uh, I've known for maybe 10 or 15 years. He happens to be a Jew and we haven't talked in ages. Uh, But yesterday, and he kind of lost track of, you know, what I was doing. And he happened to hear the show yesterday. He didn't know I was hosting the show from four to six here on the Mighty Saga 960. And he called me and he said he thought it sounded like me and he called me to verify that it was me on the air. And he uh, he had just tuned in kind of by accident during the second hour when I was speaking with Jaime Rubenstein, who was debunking some of the foolish claims regarding Israel and Palestine as uh, heard on college campuses. And this gentleman thanked me for standing up for Jews in Canada. And I, I don't mention this in any way to toot my own horn. I only mention this as this was kind of the reason for his call. And then we got into this conversation. He went on to tell me how alone Jews feel in the city right now. He and his family and friends are very nervous about going to temple. They're nervous about being out in public. He has a daughter, nervous attending university. This is the, the reason I mentioned this phone call. He feels alone. And then he asked me if I, I get pushback for standing up for Jews and Israel. And I said, yes, of course. But I told him, I don't care. That's not important. I, I seriously, I could not care less about what my detractors say. What I care about What's important is that Jews know and feel and appreciate they're not alone. I want to assure them they are not alone. The majority of Canadians stand with them. Stand with you, my Jewish listeners. Now, granted, more Canadians need to be more vocal in their support. The anti-Semites are overwhelmingly on the left. Yes, there are some skinheads out there. Not enough to fill your grandparents' rec room, let's face it. Anti-Semitism lives mainly on the left. And they are loud and they are militant, but they are in the minority. Unfortunately, they, uh, they hold positions of influence and power. They're 
union leaders, their mayors, their city councilors, their school board trustees, their university and college professors, and lawyers, law students, doctors. They're everywhere, but they're still in the minority. And I know it's getting scary out there for our Jewish friends. They're being intimidated and harassed. Their businesses are being targeted. But here's the the silver lining, if there is one. At least now the haters have identified themselves. They've outed themselves for the anti-Semites that they are, the hateful individuals that they are. Now we have moral clarity. And were it not for the horrible events of October 7th, the barbarism, the rape, the murder committed by Hamas and their supporters in Gaza, and they are many. This emboldened the anti-Semites over here. Imagine, it took that barbarism for them to actually start speaking out, outing themselves. Otherwise, they never would have stepped forward and spewed their venom and their bile and their hatred, and we never would have known who they are and what's in their heart. Now we know. Now we have moral clarity. We know which of our co-workers, our colleagues, our acquaintances hate Jews. We have moral clarity. That's worth something. And so to my Jewish friends and listeners again, happy Hanukkah. You are not alone. Uh, In case you missed this today, Harvard University I guess the Board of Regents says it will not be bullied by anti-free speech activists trying to destroy the First Amendment for speech they disagree with or label dangerous. And as a result, as a, as a result, Laudine Gay will remain president of Harvard University. And in case you missed it, I said Claudine, I meant Claudine, my apologies. Here is a Claudine Gay, president of Harvard, her testimony before the House Committee on Education from last week. Oh, apparently you're not hearing that. I'm not sure why. That's interesting. Hmm. Anyway, um, let me uh, just summarize the piece of audio. So Elise Stefanek, a Republican representative from New York, on the education committee asking the three presidents of three elite colleges and universities, MIT, University of Pennsylvania, and Harvard, whether calls for the genocide of Jews, as was heard on, on their campuses a number of times, whether that violated Harvard University's code of conduct regarding harassment and bullying. And President Claudine Gay refused to condemn it, refused to acknowledge that it was harassment and bullying. Oh, it depends on the context. There was a tremendous backlash. Uh, In the case of the president of uh, the University of Pennsylvania, Ms. McGill, she resigned in disgrace. A number of uh, donors were were going to uh, hold back considerable sums of money unless she stepped down. She stepped down. But Harvard is standing beside Claudine Gay. What, were they, what did they say again? Um, 
Harvard will not be bullied by anti-free speech activists trying to destroy the First Amendment for speech they disagree with or label dangerous. Uh, so suddenly, suddenly Harvard is standing up for the First Amendment. And those who oppo- oppose calls for genocide are anti-free speech bullies. This is amazing. Suddenly the left are champions of the First Amendment. They're suddenly for free speech. This is the, the hill they choose to die on, free speech relating to genocide of the Jewish people. And yet, the left, and I include Harvard, will seek to destroy someone professionally and personally if they fail to use someone's preferred pronouns. Death to the Jews is okay, but if you fail to use they, them, z, zoo, zippity doodah, you're fired. You're debanked. Death to the Jews is free speech, but questioning the outcome of the 2020 elections makes you a fascist, according to the left. Death to the Jews, well, it depends on the context. But say there are two genders and they want you locked up. This is the left, ladies and gentlemen. This is what we're up against. Thankfully, as I say, they're in the minority. And lucky for us, they're not too bright. So once all of us, we the people who stand for truth and beauty and goodness, once we get it together, once we come together, let's, we got to find each other. Like my friend found me on the radio yesterday after many years. We got to find each other. We got to get organized. Once that happens, the left doesn't stand a chance. The left is uh, having a meltdown because Elon Musk has uh, reinstated Alex Jones and Infowars back on X or Twitter after five years. And um, many people, maybe even most people, think Alex Jones was kicked off Twitter for comments he allegedly made regarding the Sandy Hook Elementary Public School massacre that actually uh, that took place nine years ago this coming Thursday in Newton, Connecticut. Hard to believe it's been nine years. But actually, that's not true. Jones, three strikes and eventual deplatforming from Twitter had nothing to do with Sandy Hook. Viva Fry will be here last order of business to explain why Alex Jones reinstatement is a victory for free speech in the First Amendment. Hear that, Harvard? Dr. Michael Schwartz owns the medical, uh, three medical clinics. Uh, actually, he owns three in uh, New Jersey, three in Florida. But his company was the first in New Jersey to start conducting COVID-19 testing. And uh, he has some interesting data that he wants to share. He's the author of Fauci's Fiction, the book on covid How the government and modern medicine missed the boat on COVID-19 on day one. And uh, he's today's feature interview. That's coming up in hour two. But first, an update on that story about the 50-year-old male swimmer who identifies as a teenage girl. You remember the York University professor who not only competes against teenage girls in the swimming pool, he also insists on changing with them and showering with them. David Menzies from Rebel News is next. The Richard Serrett Show off and running for Tuesday, December 12th in the year of our Lord, 2023. Facta non verba. 
We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. We have an update on the uh, that trans woman, quote unquote, Nicholas Cepeda, who trains and showers with teenage girls. And uh, David Menzies is hot on the trail of this gender bending grifter a.k.a. Melody Wisehart, and uh, the mission specialist from Rebel News joins us now. David, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing great, Richard. How are you doing, my friend? Very, very well. Um, so this um, Nicholas Apita, a.k.a. Melody Wisehart, belongs to a swimming club. It's called the Orangeville Otter Swim Club. And um, Correct. the last we spoke, I think you were up in Barrie, and uh, he was um, in the pool with thir- girls as young as 13. He was in their change room. The parents didn't seem to object, which is just bizarre. They ended up calling the police on you. Um, <laughs> anyway, and then you called the police, you know, letting them know that there was a, a 50-year-old male uh, naked in a change room with 13-year-old girls. They didn't bother to show up. So what's the update? Where did you follow this, as you say, this gender-bending grifter now? Yes, Richard. Uh, my cameraman, Kian Simone, and I went to Orangeville on Friday. Uh, the Tony Rose Memorial Sports Center is the home pool for the Orangeville Otters Swim Club. And they were having a practice, a 90-minute practice, and we decided to go there. We were uh, hoping to scrum Sapita uh, if he were to show up. Um, we went into the facility and went up to the spectators gallery and uh, lo and behold, um, you know, some of the criticism we've had from our previous videos is why aren't you interviewing the parents? Well, I can tell you one thing, Richard, I've spoken to five individual parents. They're furious about this. Um, but of course we live in woke cancel culture. So they're terrified uh, to put their name to any comment or to come on camera. So I'm working behind the scenes with them. But lo and behold, there were three mothers of youngsters at the um, at the Orangeville pool. And I started to ask them, uh, you know, ladies, do you have any problem with a 50-year-old man swimming, changing, and even showering in the nude uh, with your daughters? And Richard, it was surreal. I mean, I'll direct your listeners to look at the video. It was absolute silence. And I even, you know, threw a, um, <laughs> you know, an opportunity for them to come uh, to me off camera, uh, you know, in case they're worried about being canceled. Uh, nobody uh, ventured forward. And then they all uh, packed up their stuff and left. And then um, talk about um, deja vu all over again. The facility called the police on me. And I don't know what I was doing wrong, uh, Richard. I was, you know, practicing journalism, but apparently uh, the wokesters out there consider the asking of, I don't know, impolite, insensitive questions to be a criminal offense. And right. um, uh, I, just, I, was, like I watched the video. Sorry, David. I watched the video. The, hmm. the one she appeared to be a staff member who kept asking you to leave and you're not authorized to film and so forth, to video and so forth. Uh, she claimed she kept pointing to this piece of paper taped to the wall, something about, you know, you're not allowed to video the um, the children in the pool because they're minors. Right. And and to my, I mean, you, you weren't you weren't I didn't see you pointing the camera at anybody or 
Is that is that what she was on about? That's right. And, and Richard, here's the thing. Um, we were in the spectators gallery. The pool was in the background. You can't make out anybody. And aren't and we weren't putting our camera up against the glass and zooming in to um, swimmers who are minors. Uh, you know, on the contrary, it was just that that was where the spectators gallery was. That was where we thought Mama Bear was. Apparently, Mama Bear in Orangeville is declawed and won't protect her cubs and believes this is diversity, equity and inclusion or is too terrified to come on camera. The pool was merely a backdrop. If you if you look, you, you could not recognize anyone or make out any kind of image. So that's a red herring. But just, you know, to play devil's advocate. Say we went there with a super zoom lens and we were zooming in on children in a swimming pool. They're upset about that, but they're not upset about a 50-year-old man showering with 13 and 14-year-old girls. Are exactly. you kidding me? Exactly. Now, you the know, uh, the Otter the Otter Swim Club, you pointed out they have uh, a swimmer's bill of rights. And uh, it's yeah. like uh, they crossed out or they added some new parts in crayon or something uh, to this swimmer bill of rights. What was the addition to it to allow um, what 50 year old men who identify as teenage girls to participate as well as what did they add? Uh, Essentially? Yes. One of the rights there, there's eight of them. Uh, One of the rights that is enshrined is for um, a male uh, to uh, identify as a child I don't have it right in front of me, but that is it, it, it's, it's a short sentence that basically enshrines the right of Sapita as an adult uh, to be a child. It's enshrined in their Bill of Rights, their Constitution, Richard. Why in the world would you put something like that in? I think it's to, you know, give um, Sapita some kind of uh, enshrined protection. But Richard... A phony baloney swimmer's bill of rights does not trump the law. And I think I might have stated on your previous show, Criminal Code of Canada, Section 173.1, quote, everyone who willfully does an indecent act in a public place in the presence of one or more persons or in any place with intent to insult or offend any person is guilty of an indictable offense and is liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years, end quote. And Richard, Section 173.2, quote, an indecent exposure charge under 173.2 of the code means that the person charged is accused of exposing their genital organs to a person under the age of 16. Because this offense involves a minor, it is more serious than an indecent act charge, end quote. So, Richard, there it is in writing. It's in the criminal code. Law enforcement is aware of this. We've told them twice now. And we're the we're the ones getting trespassed for showing up and just practicing journalism. David, I got to take a time out. I got to take a time out. We'll come back and we'll uh, discuss further. David Menzies, mission specialist with Rebel News, host of the Rebel Roundup, back with more of our conversation right after this. The Richard Serrett Show. Stay with us. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. David Menzies, Rebel News Mission Specialist, stays with us talking about this um, male swimmer, 50-year-old male swimmer, Nicholas Cepeda, who uh, trains and showers and competes against teenage girls. He identifies, a 50-year-old man identifying as a teenage girl, 
And uh, David uh, followed the uh, following along in this story, went up to the Tony Rose Memorial Sports Center in Orangeville. That's the um, the home pool. They host the Otters Swim Club. Guess where Cepeda, a.k.a. Melody Wisehart, is a member. And he was expecting to find, you know, some, as he calls them, mama bears up in the um, the visitor's gallery watching the swimming, hoping that, you know, he would find some parents willing to go on the record or off the record, um, objecting to this horrible situation where they're subjecting their daughters, their teenage daughters, some as young as 13, um, to be exposed to this 15-year-old male's genitalia in the change room, in the showers. And uh, couldn't find, um, couldn't find, well, I guess you said you've talked to five parents off the record. Um, and what are they saying, David? Um, I mean, and what are they willing to do about it? Well, um, some of them have reached out to the swimming authorities, like the Barry Trojan Swim Club, where um, my camerawoman, Abria Armstrong, and I went on December 1st and um, uh, scrummed uh, Nicholas Sapita. <clears throat> and um, the swim clubs are just hiding behind uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. Everybody has the right to, to be in the pool, yada, yada, yada. Uh, this is against the rules, by the way, of uh, World Aquatics the sports international governing body. It's against certainly uh, the sections of the criminal code I previously spoke to. And, you know, Richard, what was really revealing, and I want to make a comparison, and I think uh, you're going to appreciate this. You know, when we um, chased Sapita out of the uh, that Barry Community Center, um, we were asking him question after question, and he transitioned from a swimmer into an Olympic class sprinter right. uh, as he ran for his car. And the only comment he said before he descended into his car was, somebody protect me from these people. And Richard, I think that's very revealing because I think ever since his so-called transition, I put air quotes there, uh, Sapita has been protected by everyone to do anything. So, he's, I, so he says, I yeah. want to wear a dress. Well, that's just Andy Nicholas. Go for it. I want to swim with little girls. Hey, big guy, you go for it. I want to expose my genitals to teenage girls and shower with them. Well, that's okay, Nicholas. Who are we to say that that is wrong? And what this reminds me of, Richard, is I think it's one of the most disturbing Twilight Zone episodes ever from 1961 entitled It's a Good Life. Do you remember that episode, Richard? Um, remind me, who was in it? Was it Burgess Meredith? <laughs> uh, oh, no, that, that's time enough at last. That's, okay. that's the most I can see I'm dealing episode. with an aficionado here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, a, it, it's set, it, you know, post some kind of disaster. It appears that the entire world has disappeared, except for the little town of Peaksville, Ohio. And there is a very cute six-year-old boy named Anthony Fremont. He resides there, but he's a mutant. He's a monster. He has developed uh, somehow godlike mental powers, including the ability to read minds and the ability to obliterate you on a whim if he doesn't agree with you. So the whole episode, Richard, is the entire town, including his parents, beholden to this six-year-old. Six so if he disables all the cars from working, oh, that's very good, Anthony. If he creates freaks like three-headed gophers and then kills them when he gets bored with them, that's wonderful, Anthony. It's all about appeasing him because if they do not, 
they're going to be planted quite literally in the cornfield. And this is an analogy, I think, that we have to transanity today. We have these people, and I've met a lot of them, Richard, and I'm telling you, mental illness reigns here, okay? Once upon a time, these people were in rubber rooms. And instead, we are accommodating them. We are just allowing them to identify as whatever and compete with whomever they want to, you know, all at the expense of women's sports. And I'll just read you the end narration from um, uh, Mr. Serling on uh, uh, It's a Good Life. No comment here, no comment at all. We only wanted to introduce you to one of our very special citizens, little Anthony Fremont, age six, who lives in a village called Peaksville in a place that used to be Ohio. And if by some strange chance you should run across him, you had best think only good thoughts. And Richard, replace the name Anthony Fremont, the fictional uh, character, with a transgender whatever, power lifter, swimmer, uh, cyclist, you name it. And that's the deal here. You can't call out these gender bender grifters for what they are. You best only think good thoughts. And if you don't, you know what? The woke mob is going to come to cancel you. Well put, David. Now, the um, the police were called on you yet again, uh, claiming you were trespassing. <laughs> when you when you uh, asked this police officer if she was aware that there was a 50 year old male nude in the change rooms with 13 year old girls. She was totally nonplussed. She said, well, you know, go across the street and call the police if you want. I mean, she was right there. She was not willing. She was not. She could be less interested in in pursuing that. She just wanted to make sure that you got off the sidewalk. It's sad, isn't it, Richard? Because the cops who, by the way, we know this. I don't. These were OPP uh, police officers. Three cruisers, by the way, Richard responded. Three. I guess there's no crime in Orangeville these days. But anyways, um, it just shows you how the cops, I think, are also internally terrified of being seen as anti-trans. And I know that for a fact, you know, we were tipped off by a Toronto police officer. The Toronto cops, for one force, have to take mandatory trans training. And Richard, I'll tell you, uh, it's not, the theme of this training is not that transgender people have equal rights. It's that transgender people have special rights. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if these modules are forced upon other police forces, including the OPP, and they know that these are special citizens. These are people that, well, Richard, clearly above the law, at least when it comes to Section 173.1 and 173.2 of the criminal code. So she's probably thinking, do I want to put my career at risk? Do I want to lose my pension? So, no, she is not interested in going after uh, this person, Nicholas Sapita, a.k.a. Melody Weishart. And uh, there you have it. What can I say? And I want to say this too, Richard. You know, for someone who identifies as a woman, he's very, very manly. He still has his male genitalia. We know that for a fact. He hasn't, you know, done any kind of surgery, like, say, put breast implants on him, right? right. Basically, he is married to a biological woman, Right. So basically, his idea of being a woman is just wearing feminine clothing. That's it. 
how in any rational scheme does that count as being female? But it's wow. being tolerated and in some circles um, embraced and uh, shown as an example uh, of diversity, equity and inclusion, my friend. It's a, it's a horrendous situation. And again, I have to say, shame on the parents who are just sitting by silently allowing this to happen. Uh, you know, put on your uh, your uh, big boy pants or your whatever, your big mama, uh, your bear mama bear outfit or whatever you need to do. Put on your bear claws. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm so um, I'm just I'm practically foaming at the mouth. I'm so upset about this. I can't I can't even put my sentences together. Put on your bear claws, mama bears, and uh, do something about this. Stand up for your daughters. Shame on you. David Menzies, Rebel Roundup, Monday to Thursday at uh, Rebel News Plus and uh, various other um, um, video platforms. David, thank you so much, as always. Thank you, Richard. Take care, my friend. All right. Thank you. When we come back, open lines, 289-275-9600, 289-275-9600. Back with more of The Richard Serrett Show right after this. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. In the door is open at 289-275-9600. Come on in. Come on in. 289-275-9600. You can call or you can text and maybe you'd like to weigh in on the uh, continuing transanity saga, uh, the latest involving a 50-year-old male who identifies as a teenage girl and therefore um, feels entitled to compete in the swimming pool against teenage girls to change in their change room. This is a fully intact 50-year-old male uh, who also feels entitled to shower in the nude with 13-year-old girls. Are you all right with that? 289-275-9600. Apparently, a number of parents are up at the uh, Orangeville Otter Swim Club. And um, David Menzies was on the case, and they called the police on him and charged him with trespassing. And the police could not care less that there was a 50-year-old naked male in a shower with teenage girls. Couldn't care less. What's going on? What is going on? This is a mandate. The word has come down from on high. They are to ignore this. They are to ignore this. Maybe there are some police out there with... um, a conscience, and this is this is uh, burning a hole in their heart and their soul. Maybe they'd like to come out, come on the phone, and uh, come on the show and talk about it. Two eight nine two seven five ninety six hundred. All right, not sure who this is. Uh, I believe they're calling from Toronto. Hello, hey. hi there, welcome. Hey, Richard. Yes, go hey, ahead, buddy. You know, I don't understand this. Uh, pervert okay these guys are talking about what about the fathers yes where the hell are they exactly huh exactly where are they where are the fathers and the mothers standing up for their their teenage daughters now i don't yes 
right now, when you're saying you're falling from your mouth, my nerves right now, I'm Italian. Okay? I am high blood pressure. Anyone that touches my kids like that or do anything like that, oh, my God, God cannot save them. There's no way in the world God could save this person. I like to know where... Sorry, uh, go ahead. um, You got cut off there. You'd like to know what? Sorry, you'd like to know what? I missed you that. I missed that. Okay, Okay. what I was saying... This person, okay, I don't understand the police or whatever. What's wrong with the police? The police are nuts? Well, like I said, I think think what's happening with the police is I think they've been instructed. Um, David Menzies mentioned the Toronto police. There's a program now, a training program, how to deal with um, so-called transgendered people. And it's like, it's not about equal rights. It's like they have special rights, special rights. So the police don't seem interested at all, even though we have a 50-year-old male in a change room, in a shower with teenage girls. That's where we're at, folks. And listen, uh, just to be clear, um, there's no indication that this um, Nicholas Cepeda has touched any girls. There's no indication of that. Um, and I, you know, I I certainly don't want any physical harm to come to this person. This person needs psychological help is what this person needs, but this person should not be under any circumstances allowed in a change room or a shower with teenage girls. It is unconscionable. And for the police to sit by and do nothing, they're murdering the reputation yet again. Yet again. All right. When we come back, Isaac Lamoureux from True North will be here. He'll tell us about this federal incentive. They want to reduce cow farts and burps because it's continue. It's uh, contributing to uh, global warming. <laughs> I kid you not. That story is next. Stay with us. Back to the conversation on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk Saga, nine sixty a.m. All right, welcome back. So uh, I guess COP28, the Conference of the Parties, is uh, wrapped up uh, finally over there in uh, Dubai, the United Arab Emirates. Something like 70,000 envoys flew over there. Private jets, once they get their limos. They had electric cars, I guess, for some, but even those were... How were they charged? The power grid? Diesel. (laughs) Diesel generators. Anyway... All of that money, all of that time, all of that expense, all of that jet fuel. And what do they come up with? Their big idea? They want to incentivize farmers to reduce cow burps. I kid you not. Ridiculous. Isaac Lamoureux is a journalist with True North and he has the story. Isaac, welcome. How are you? Hi, Richard. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on to today. I'm, I'm doing pretty good, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it is to laugh. Um, anyway, with, so the, the idea they want to reduce something called enteric methane emissions from beef cattle. In other words, beef uh, cow burps, and I would imagine cow farts would be in that uh, because they believe this is 
um, giving rise to increased methane, which, by the way, is an insignificant greenhouse gas. Anyway, um, so how do they implant? How do they plan on reducing cow burps here in Canada, at least? Yeah, so it seems that to reduce cow burps and, and cow farts, they essentially want to change the cow's diet primarily. So that would constitute essentially substituting hay with corn silage in cattle's diets, which diminishes uh, methane emissions, as you said, which they're kind of now encompassing this whole emission reductions target, not just carbon anymore, but methane has joined the party. And uh, yeah, so similarly, incorporating specific varieties of uh, seaweed or chemical additives uh, into their feed can yield the same effect. But of course, uh, as you can imagine, Richard, all of these options cost more than what they're currently doing. So they, they want to stop. They want us to stop feeding cows hay <laughs> and replace it with what did you call it? Corn silage? Yeah, silage. Yeah. What is that? Just, uh, yeah. Uh, just a I byproduct of corn, I guess. Or silage. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, um, that's, that change in diet, um, is that going to be expensive for farmers? Yeah. As I said, all of these options are more expensive than farmers are currently paying. So of course they'll pay more. And as a byproduct, consumers will pay more. All right. Um, do we have any idea what, what that would, um, how that would affect the price of, let's say, a pound of ground beef? Do we, I guess we don't have the numbers yet, but it's going to go up, in other words. Yeah, I don't have the numbers. Funny enough, my uh, grandpa texted me after he had re- read the article and said, uh, he was just talking about uh, several family members I have that are for personally in the farming business. So I'm aiming to, to talk with them and maybe get a, a deeper understanding into how the economics how their economics will be uh, affected if this comes in, into uh, into play. Right. So they're they're not at this point they're not mandating that farmers stop stop feeding their their cows hay. They're trying to incentivize them to do so. How how will they incentivize them? Yeah, well this was actually uh, I guess the fourth draft uh, of the protocol and the final protocol is expected uh, to be published in, in the summer of 2024. So they said that they're taking um comments until February, so it can still change up to then. But uh, as for the incentivization, I guess, yeah, that farmers that uh, successfully reduce their emissions uh, will earn a credit. That's for every one ton reduced uh, of methane. And then they can sell those credits. And again, nowhere in the protocol or the draft did I read um, the price that they'd be able to sell for. So that's uh, unclear to me still. I just know that they'll be able to sell it to uh, essentially other companies or farmers or organizations who want to or need to uh, based on the legislation, reduce their uh, footprint. So cap and trade on cow farts. So <laughs> if they reduce the amount of methane their cows are producing, um, they can sell that credit to another beef farmer. Is that the idea? Yeah. Or I, I again, I am not entirely sure, but I think that um, say there's a, a an emission. Uh, restriction. Let's say they, they they say that all companies need to get their emissions down fifty percent, and some company, take your pick, hasn't done that. They'd be able to buy the credit uh, off the farmers. Oh, I see. Okay, but still, the farmer is going to be forced to pass the added expense on to the customer. So either way, we're going to be paying more for a pound of uh, hamburger. Anyway, yeah. you cut. Yeah. And um, any has there been any response from? Um, I don't know, the, the Beef Growers Association or any politicians out uh, out in the prairies where they grow beef? 
Well, Daniel Smith has been vocal, obviously, over the last several months. She's been in a, almost a war with uh, Climate Minister Stephen Gibo because of his many uh, restrictions that he's trying to implement into Alberta. And she's been, uh, of course, using her Sovereignty Act to say that uh, provincial jurisdiction is provincial jurisdiction. So we'll, we'll see how she can <laughs> try and implement uh, maybe her sovereignty act to protect against this, though. I don't, I don't see how that's going to be a possibility. Um, yeah, because that's not, it's agriculture, right? That's not exclusively a provincial jurisdiction. So. Yeah. Essentially the, the, the sovereignty act just uh, protects any things that are entirely interprovincial. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, we're already, as you point out in your article, uh, Isaac, we're already struggling with uh, inflation and affordability issues and groceries going through the uh, um, I, haven't, I haven't checked recently uh, what the price of a pound of hamburger is. But uh, I mean, that's a staple. I mean, it's an important staple for a lot of families because it was relatively affordable for quite a time. And it, it, it contains so many, you know, important vitamins and nutrients. And uh, and now. This this risks, you know, putting that out of reach for many families. Um, I, I, you know, Canadians are fed up with the carbon tax. I, I, I can't imagine they're going to be at all pleased with this. What do you think? Yeah, you know, it's funny. And I, I wrote a, another article today that um, uh, essentially discussed how Canada fell to 67 or sorry, 62nd out of 67 countries on the climate change performance index. Uh, last year, they were 58th uh, uh, out of 63 countries. So they added four more countries. And in, in both instances, Canada was the sixth lowest rated country. Despite uh, having a carbon tax, they were uh, were obviously even below China, which is kind of crazy. So we're not not only are we not meeting our emission um, level standards or whatever, According to the uh, Paris Climate Accord, we're failing in that regard, and and at the same time, we're just making life miserable for Canadians. So it's 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 an abject failure. This whole carbon scheme, we knew that. Um, so they're just going to pile on and add something uh, something more to the uh, to our misery, and that is uh, higher prices for for beef at the grocery store. They want to they want to um, reduce cow burps and cow farts. Oh dear! All right, Isaac. Thank you so much for this. Yeah, thanks a lot, Richard. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Isaac Lamoureux. He's a journalist with True North. All right. Hour two coming up. Dr. Michael Schwartz will be with us. Uh, his company, his, um, he's got three clinics in New Jersey. They were the, uh, the first to start conducting COVID-19 testing. And uh, he is the author of Fauci's Fiction, the book on COVID, how the government and modern medicine missed the boat on COVID-19 on day one. Is our feature interview today. And then coming up, last order of business, Alex Jones and Infowars reinstated on Twitter or X, if you'd, la- if you'd rather. And uh, the left, of course, going absolutely insane. Viva Fry will be here with his thoughts. That's hour two of the Richard Serrett Show coming your way in about six minutes. Stay with us. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption. This is the Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Meaning we're not 
Two of the Richard Serrett Show, and if you missed hour one, you missed a lot, but don't despair. Still plenty of great programming coming your way this hour, including David Freiheit, a.k.a. Viva Fry. Just incredibly popular uh, on uh, Rumble and YouTube and uh, the Viva Barnes Law program, uh, vivabarneslaw.locals.com. And uh, Viva will uh, weigh in on the reinstatement of Alex Jones and InfoWars on uh, Twitter and X. And, of course, uh, the left is melting down, going insane. And um, we'll find out uh, what David or Viva thinks about that. Did the government and modern medicine miss the boat on COVID-19 from day one, or did they lie? Dr. Michael J. Schwartz was uh, the first in the state of New Jersey to conduct COVID-19 testing. He has uh, three clinics there. And... uh, He says that uh, he knew immediately, almost, that what Dr. Fauci was telling the American people on television during the White House briefings didn't match the data he and his staff collected on the ground. Dr. Schwartz has been an entrepreneur since 1993. Again, he owns and operates three medical clinics in both New Jersey and Florida. And uh, he is the author of Fauci's Fiction, the book on COVID, How the Government and Modern Medicine Missed the Boat on COVID-19 from Day One. Dr. Michael Schwartz, welcome to The Richard Serrett Show. How are you? Great, Richard. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Uh, just um, um, remind us how your, your three clinics, how you, how you became the first in the state uh, to, to uh, start testing people for COVID-19. Yeah. So we always try to practice good medicine. And for years, we had practiced something called a respiratory pathogen panel. And that's because 41 million antibiotics are written every year, 23 million are unnecessary. So we like to practice good medicine, make sure we're actually swabbing. As I put it semantically, I mean, most of my patients, all of my patients knew what COVID swabs were well before the world, because if you had come to us five years ago and were sick, we were going to swab you, send it off to the lab, see what it was. So we were already set up to do this prepared. And of course, one of the labs we work with was one of the first 30 in the nation to get approval. So it really just kind of happened by happenstance. So you're not talking about the rapid tests. You're talking about like the PCR. um, Proper, proper PCR testing, doing it the right way. Rapid tests are completely different animal. Okay. So, well, explain um, why they're completely different animals. So PCR testing takes a sample and looks for a signal. It amplifies it hundreds, thousands, millions, billions of times. And I know there's a lot of controversy regarding PCR testing. If you were to continue that uh, that 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 cycle value all the way up and, and nonstop, you could basically find anything in the world. Reputable labs are going to cut that cut that value off uh, at a rate that is going to specifically identify what they're looking for. So the labs that I work with go to 36 levels. It's going to take that sample. It's going to amplify it, and it, the, the testing is logarithmic. So the sensitivity isn't linear. It doesn't go one, two, three, four, five. It goes one, then ten times the sensitivity, a hundred thousand. 
10,000, 10,000, so on, all the way to level 36. So at level 36, I only need nine copies of a virus in your system to tell me it's in your system, it's replicated, it's bound. You 100% have it. I could do this with repeatable data on the same patient over and over. A rapid test, in contrast, you need 10 to the 6th to 10 to the ninth power of virus. What does that mean? Instead of those nine copies, I need 9 million to 9 billion to turn that rapid card blue. So if you're positive on a rapid, you definitely have enough virus. However, a rapid test can turn positive for any coronavirus, including the common cold. So scientifically, it really tells me nothing. But a negative on a rapid tells me even less because you need so much more virus uh, to, to pop positive on a rapid test. Okay. And again, the, the PCR, um, again, is that, that's, is that going to rule out other coronaviruses or is it going to, is it going to be positive for any coronavirus, including the flu or the cold? Right now, there's 31 things on our respiratory pathogen panel. And uh, the majority of people who were sick from COVID uh, that actually had symptoms had a co-infection. Usually it was staph aureus, which is a respiratory staph infection. I always point out, I had one guy write about in the book about two years ago. He had COVID, staph, H-flu, and RSV all at the same time. So you really need to properly understand and diagnose what you're dealing with before you can start treating. Uh, you know, If you go out to the store and get a rapid and it pops positive, like I said, it could be a cold, but you don't know what else you have. Have going on in your system. And there are very stark differences between bacterial, viral, and then we have a fungal pathogen on our panel as well. So what were you finding when you, uh, when you were testing people um, for COVID when the, um, the outbreak first started? What were you, what were you discovering in terms of uh, the numbers? There are a couple of things. So number one, the first uh, 441 visits we did were home visits when everyone else was locked down. And I'll tell you some stats here. 100% of the time, if someone in the household had it, 100% of the time, every single person in the household had it. But out of those uh, patients, and you got to put this in perspective, I had 19,000 total patients. We did over 44,000 tests and we had over 4,000 positives. Of that positive population, 90% of my patients were asymptomatic or mild. Uh, only 10 to 15% had any, any what we call classical symptoms. So you have to understand the perspective. Sick people will go to the hospital, they'll go to the doctor's office, but we were also testing schools, police departments, uh, you name it, uh, assisted livings, anyone who mandated testing for their staff or their patient population. And we would have to do this weekly. So what we have is a little different than most people. We have what's called horizontal data on on thousands and thousands of patients. So if you could look at the same cops, you know, the, the same hundred police officers every week. And when you what you notice is when you have to call 10 of them every week to tell them they're positive, but you have to convince nine of them that they have COVID because they don't have symptoms, you start to put trends together and you realize that everyone has this, but most people don't get sick from it. And that has to do with viral load, co-infection and comorbidity. Okay. So in a nutshell, what you were discovering was um, this was spreading like crazy. The vast majority of people probably had it. The vast majority did not have serious symptoms. Uh, So what's the takeaway there? Well, in the beginning, you know, we're kind of looking at each other. I'm having conversations with folks at the hospital. They're dealing with gloom and doom. Again, their perspective, sick people go there. So they're telling me, hey, I'm putting people in body bags. Meanwhile, I'm trying to tell them, look, I'm out testing, you know, the common man and woman on the street. And everybody seems to have this thing, but most people don't have symptoms. You know, having that conversation every day is it's, it's frustrating because you have the conversation 4,000 times. I called every single positive patient 
while we were doing this. So I'm recording symptomology. I'm recording how long they were sick. Uh, you know, you're, you're putting a lot together to develop these trends. So, you know, we're kind of shaking our heads when we're looking at the media that they're locking people down. They're keeping kids out of school. You see suicide rates going up. And the more they talk, the more we're shaking our heads and everything we would say in the office to each other and our patient population, it would take the media about 12 months before they caught up. You know, it, it, you, you talk about uh, on the media, if you remember when they talked about the clotting from the J and J, we were seeing clotting from all three shots when they started releasing the vaccines. Meanwhile, it took them about six months before they talked about it. We're looking at each other going, really? They're, they're just catching this now. So it was a little frustrating. Yeah. That's why I call them the downstream lamestream media. They are downstream. Uh, they're, they're way behind in everything. So again, though, the, you, you were seeing such high infection rates, um, and so given the high infection rates, and we, I don't know if you, you can hazard a guess to what, you know, in the, the, the final equation, how many, how many Americans at least were in, likely infected with COVID. When you compare that to the mortality, this ends up being just like many of us were saying from the get go, this ends up being just a seasonal flu, right? The numbers are similar. That So the signals are very different. And COVID, SARS-CoV-2 is very different than influenza A or influenza B. But you're correct. And the numbers are exactly the same. And we extrapolated that pretty early on. And we looked at those numbers, as you and I have talked before, about trying to figure out what the, uh, what the infection rate was going to be weeks and months ahead. But when you look at the mortality rate, sure, the flu is about 0.01%. COVID has is, is, is come down to just about that level. And as I tell you know, just about everybody, you would never lock down the entire world for a bad flu season. But yet we went through this exercise. And I guess the point of the book and figuring all this data out pretty early was that we didn't have to go through this crazy exercise. We knew this. So meanwhile, I'm thinking if I know this, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and, you know, Walensky at the CDC, they have to see this. They, they've got to be talking to practitioners on the ground, you would think, to say we got to put the brakes on what we're doing, these draconian measures. But that never seemed to happen. We'll uh, take a quick time out. Dr. Michael Schwartz stays with us, the author of Fauci's Fiction. And um, we'll, uh, we'll continue to discuss uh, the data that he discovered very early on while testing the first uh, company in New Jersey to start testing for COVID-19. Back with more of our conversation in three minutes. Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Fauci's Fiction, the book on covid how the government and modern medicine missed the boat on COVID-19 from day one. Dr. Michael Schwartz is uh, with us, uh, owns and operates three medical clinics in uh, both New Jersey and Florida. And his company was the first in New Jersey to start conducting COVID-19 testing. And um, he quickly realized that um, the uh, the data that he was collecting did not line up with what Dr. Fauci was uh, and others were telling the American people on television during the, uh, the those White House briefings during covid um, what were you telling patients when they called you back uh, or when you called them and you told them that they were positive um, and let's say they had some symptoms? Uh, what were you telling them to do? Well, it was a very simple regimen that we uh, we created right from the beginning of uh, an NP who does uh, who does this professionally in pulmonology. And it was wonderful to have her on board. So we, we came up with a simple regimen, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and electrolytes. If someone was going to get run down and go to the hospital, it was usually going to be going to be because their electrolytes were imbalanced. Uh, C, D, and zinc just help your immune system boost a bit. And most of the people that we saw uh, that had any symptoms were recovering within two or three days. Uh, it, it, it was different symptomology through different 
uh, different spike proteins. You can kind of see the differences that we had in the L and the S train and then into Delta before we got into Omicron. Uh, we were kind of recording that as well. So you could you could really see trends with all three and understand how these viruses were affecting the human being. So how did you know that was the protocol to use when, you know, Fauci and Burks were saying, well, there is, and let's face it, the hospitals, there, there is no standard of care. If you have it, stay at home. But then if you can't breathe and your lips turn blue or your toes turn blue, come to the hospital. They put you on a ventilator. And in, well, in, at least in New York, something like 90 percent of people that were placed on a ventilator died. Um, how did you know so early that this was the protocol? Well, we really didn't. I had to trust my medical staff. I'm a research doctor, not a medical doctor. So I let my medical staff come up with the protocol. And then, of course, we would relay that to each patient. We really didn't know. But what we were seeing in the beginning is you have to understand it. Perspective is important, right? So it's not like we knew this right from the start. You know, you, you deal with a couple hundred patients in the first couple of weeks and then you, you're talking to them. You're seeing how they recover and you're relaying that information set to the next grouping of patients and so on and so on. And so, on. so you're learning as you go. Science evolves, right? So our office was evolving quickly. But but we also wanted to collect that data so that we could understand and help those patients. That regimen seemed to work well. Uh, just to put something in perspective, as I mentioned, out of 4,000 plus positives, we only had four go to the hospital. Uh, we did not lose a single patient during that time. So there was really no need to do any other treatments besides, yes, of course, we told our patients if you had something uh, specific where you, you, know, you couldn't breathe and you needed medical attention to please go to the hospital, none of those patients needed to go. Um, they would ask because patients Patients were out of fear and watching the television, thinking that they needed to go to the hospital. But having that information was great because you were able to calm the next set of patients down. You were telling them what you saw in your previous previous patient population to let them know that, hey, my patients are recovering quite nicely. This is what we normally see once the fever breaks. You know, it's typically you're it's at, you know, it's you're kind of on the downswing, but, you know, in the next two, three days, you're going to feel fine. And as you're calming those patients down, if they know what other people are experiencing, they know what to expect themselves. And that kind of I, I want to say curbed our grouping of patients from rushing the hospitals. Um, when you were trying to share this information, with the media or whomever, um, what was the response when, first of all, you said, listen, this is, you know, I've, I've done the numbers. This is going to be like the seasonal flu. It's going to infect just about everybody. And, um, you know, we're going to get some mortality, obviously, uh, with people with, you know, underlying medical conditions and, and so forth. But, um, you know, locking down is not the way to go. And I've got a protocol that seems to be working. What was the response? I heard everything under the sun, Richard, from, you know, some famous celebrities. So I won't I'll, I'll leave them nameless here. But I mean, I'm having these conversations and they're looking at me like cross-eyed saying, why are the the only guy saying this? And I'm trying to tell them, no, there's multiple people of, like us saying it, but we're getting shadow banned. You'd put stuff out on the Internet and it gets shut down real quick. Or I mentioned I put a, a post up on Facebook saying we should probably adopt the Swedish model here and not put our country through this because this isn't so bad. I got ridiculed. People are saying you're going to kill people, you know, and by the way, this is people who come from all different walks of life, but nobody's doing what I'm doing on a daily basis. They're not talking to patients. They're not seeing this and recording symptomology. These are people from all walks of life, but you know, everybody's got an opinion like, you know what? So it, it was very frustrating. Um, you know, I would never go to somebody else's job and assume I know better than them. Uh, when you're doing this firsthand and you're trying to relay that information, it was super frustrating to get shadow banned and shut down every five seconds. Seconds. But, you know, we, we were our data was spot on. I mean, we I, look, if, if we're wrong on something, you're going to you're going to adjust and change as science evolves. But we were pretty spot on. My staff did a great job and we did a really good job analyzing the data. 
And uh, what were your thoughts on uh, on masking? I mean, it was interesting to see Fauci and others um, flip flop, you know, first saying, you know, this is this was the established science. Uh, you know, masks really don't do anything for a virus. Uh, and Fauci said as much. And then before too long, I guess they real, <clears throat> realized it was an effective uh, tool to instill fear. You see someone w- walking towards you with a mask. Anyway, soon everyone was you know, all in on masks. What, what were your thoughts on that when that when that became, uh, you know, the suggested approach masks? The second dumbest thing I've ever seen in my entire career. I mean, it, it just lacks any credibility. It, it lacks any logic. We do not wear masks for viruses. Uh, you know, if I put a surgical mask on, it's rated for three microns. The important thing to remember is it's not duct taped to your face. That and, and, and if you understand uh, air fluidity and particle size, anything less than 0.25 microns does not settle by gravity. Any particle that small becomes part of air fluidity. When you can imagine you could fit 500 million COVID particles on a pinhead and you have somebody symptomatic in a room, you are walking around millions and billions of particles. Understand that it only takes one live particle to infect you. One, if it's adenovirus, it's six. But for COVID and influenza, one live particle. Uh, you are doing nothing with the mask. However, you're making your situation worse. Uh, you're, you're breeding a warm, moist environment, which is ripe for bacteria growth, which is why I think we were seeing a lot of people with co-infections like staph, H flu, Meroxella, cataralysis These are all uh, bacterial pathogens. And these, these people are thinking they have a force field on their face. I, Richard, in the, in the first couple weeks when I was calling patients to tell them they were positive, I'd have more people gasp on the phone and say, I don't understand. I've been wearing a mask the whole time. And then that narrative would change, you know, a year later when I called a positive and they say, I don't understand. I'm fully vaccinated. It's just, people just did not want to listen to the real science. Um, it's out there. I mean, I, I've, I've had it out in my book since June, which keeps getting shadow banned and censored. But there are still a multitude of people in this country, in my country, in the world, in Canada, that do not understand the basic science, timelines, how they transmit, how masks really work, how testing works. And that, I think, is just the very basics of what everyone needs to know. Fauci's Fiction, the book on COVID, Dr. Michael Schwartz, another timeout, back with more of our conversation right after this timeout right here on Saga 960. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Just a reminder, coming up next, Viva Fry, David Fry Height, will be here. We'll talk about Alex Jones being reinstated on Elon Musk's platform X or Twitter. And uh, the left, of course, going absolutely insane. Fry Height will uh, explain why this is a, uh, a victory for free speech in the First Amendment. All right, Dr. Michael Schwartz, again, the author of Fauci's Fiction, the book on COVID, how the government and modern medicine missed the boat on COVID-19 from day one. Um, you knew very early on as well that uh, the vaccines would not be uh, effective. Explain. Sure, we hypothesized pretty early on. I talked to my immunologist about this. The uh, flu vaccine's about 30 to 40% uh, effective and, and that changes year to year. But I said, look, when, when you're looking at what the companies were touting, Pfizer, Moderna here and uh, J&J, you know, res- respectively, 77 to 95 percent effective. I said to my immunologist, when you look at the the R not of this and you could see how quick it mutates, um, don't you expect that the the efficacy rate of the COVID vaccines will come down in five to you know five months to five years to that of about the flu? And he hypothesized, I said, yeah, I agree with that. So we kind of knew, and we were talking to 
folks and saying, look, we think you're going to need more than one of these. You're going to need this every year. Uh, we told our patients you can absolutely get and give COVID once you've been uh, you know, vaccinated. And I use that word loosely. I don't like the word vaccine. Uh, I didn't like that they were using it. Uh, when you say that to an elderly person, they think polio lifetime immunity or hep B 10 years immunity or long term immunity, period, not 120 day antibody response, which is what we were seeing on average from not only natural immunity, but from the shot itself. And people were discounting natural immunity the entire time. So why would you need a vaccine or a shot if you've had COVID? You have BNT lymphocyte memory response. Um, so there is a lot wrong with what the government media were saying. And, uh, I, I, you know, it, I, I say it baffles your mind. It was baffling us the entire time during the process as to why they wouldn't let that information out. And now, of course, people speculate as to the uh, the why. The um, we, we, Was there any indication to you early on that not only was it not effective, but it was also not safe. Well, I'll be clear. We didn't not recommend the vaccine early on because we thought there'd be issues from it. The reason we didn't recommend it, if you had come to me as a patient and you got to remember, I didn't lose anybody. Everybody was recovering quite nicely. So if you'd come to me and say, hey, Mike, do I need this experimental mRNA never been tested before vaccine for this? The answer was a laughing. No, you don't. You don't need it. It's fine. You're going to get it anyway. You're going to recover. Um it didn't work, uh, number one. And, and number two, again, you didn't need it. What we started to see after the vaccine was kind of glaring. I mean, cause and correlation. This is how science has developed. You would see a patient come in. I write about one in the book. She's 20 years old. She got the shot. Immediately, within a week, her joints started to swell up. She got the second shot. Her joints got worse. Then she caught COVID. Well, lo and behold, I mean, that's why she got the shot in the first place. Now she caught COVID and her joints were even worse because we understand the reasons why the cytokines flare up areas of instability. And that's kind of what we're seeing with the shots now in totality. In other words, if, if, if this girl at 20, if she would probably had joint issues at 40, but now it's developing at 20. You see heart issues and somebody that may have developed at 70 and now it's exhibiting itself at 40. It's really, it's the, those cytokines are going in. And, and when you do the autopsies on these patients, you see inflammation in areas it's not supposed to be. So that's what you're seeing in patients now. You're seeing patients have complications due to some kind of inflammatory uh, response. And that's what's being caused by the vaccines. Um, are you uh, concerned about the possibility of a, uh, let's call it a vaccine-induced acquired immune deficiency syndrome uh, in the vaccinated population? 100%. And I am uh, studying that a little bit more. I'm working on that with some microbiologists and some other uh, medical practitioners uh, for a second book to follow up on the vaccines. You know, the, the book does talk about the vaccines. It tells a lot of an anecdotal stories about what we're seeing on patients now at an early stage. Uh, but there's another side to that story. And there's more to come on that because the data is starting to be prominent. Uh, the data is right in front of our faces. You know, I, I always mention the one on the uh, stillborn births related to vaccines. 30 years of data. You see 25 or less for 30 years. And then in 2021, 20, uh, it was 3,600. And in 2022, 1,600. I mean, these things are out there, but no one really wants to talk about it. And if you do, you get censored. When the next one happens, um, do you think we learned our lesson? Or are we going to repeat all of the same mistakes again? I didn't write this book for me. I wrote it for the public so that they can understand this and hopefully be prepared for when the next one comes. Problem is, you know, the information, like I said, is being shadow banned and censored. So I think, unfortunately, if the next one comes, we're going to do uh, almost the exact same thing we did during COVID-19.
including lockdowns, destroying businesses, setting, um, you know, education back 20 years, increase in mental health issues. We're going to live all that hell again. I hope not. But, you know, Richard, when you think about where the critical mask is, there's enough of us who are smart enough to say, no, I'm not wearing these things. But we did on planes. Now, what is the critical mass? You know, at 50 percent, because if 50 percent said we're doing it and 50 percent of us said, no, we're not doing it. The, the do it's would have still won because they had the law on their side. It takes enough critical mass to turn the populace. And unfortunately, the populace, I hate to say it this way, but a good friend of mine and I quote him in the book. He says the average IQ in the United States is 100. So think about that. Half the country has an IQ of less than 100. And normally you could see them now they're wearing masks in their cars. Uh, it's it's pretty scary. So if enough of them went along with the lockdowns and the, you know, closing schools down, uh, unfortunately, we would be suffering at the will of those masses. Yeah, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. Fauci's fiction, the book on COVID, how the government and modern medicine missed the boat on COVID-19 from day one. Dr. Michael J. Schwartz, the author. How do we get a copy? Uh, Amazon.com is the easiest way. You can always go to Fauci'sFiction.com as well. All right. Get on there, buy it, review it, give it a positive review. And um, let's um, we'll, we'll look forward to the next book. Thank, thank you so much, Dr. Schwartz. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Richard. My pleasure. All right. When we come back, David Freiheit, Viva Fry will be here. Alex Jones reinstated on Twitter and the left goes insane. Back with that story in three minutes. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 a.m. All right. Welcome back. Uh, years ago, um, I made a couple of appearances on uh, Alex Jones radio show. I was kind of his... Uh, not his Canadian correspondent, but he wanted he wanted some perspective from uh, the Great White North, and he he came on my program. I don't know, maybe three or four times, and then I mean, he just went through the stratosphere. He became so popular, um, and um, I don't know, he's not for everybody, obviously, but he has um, his fans are legion, and um, I don't know. I thought at a certain point he became a bit of a parody of himself, and there's some hilarious kind of clips floating around on uh, Instagram. My boys really get a kick out of this because we have a couple of pet ducks and there's one he's saying, uh, oh, you can keep the ducks. You can go on the ponds and take them. I have the documents to prove it. <laughs> it's just, just, you know, the, the no context is just hilarious. However, uh, the, it's, it's hard to argue. I mean, he's been right so many times <clears throat> about so many things. And uh, then, of course, about five years ago, he was kicked off Twitter. Three strikes and you're out. And uh, now... He's uh, just been reinstated and uh, the left is imploding, going absolutely insane. Alex Jones is the most dangerous person on the planet, according to them. Uh, And some see this as a a victory for free speech and the First Amendment. David Freiheit, Viva Fry, joins us once again. Of course, you can uh, check out uh, his fabulous program on Rumble and YouTube and vivabarneslaw.locals.com. Viva, welcome back. How are you? Very good, Richard. Just to make sure you can hear me, right? I can. I can hear you. Okay, awesome. Because sometimes the mic doesn't work. Uh, yeah, this is uh, an interesting development. Watching people literally melt down on Twitter, or I should say spiritually melt down on Twitter. Uh, there was one guy who put out a tweet. How many innocent people are going to get murdered because Alex Jones is back on Twitter? And I'm like, man, that sounds more like a threat than a prediction. <laughs> Mr. Levitt, who was the guy who tweeted it. Right, right. So the thing with Alex Jones is people, um, they tend to 
uh, kind of conflate what happened to him on Twitter with, you know, the, the, the massive lawsuit where he was ordered by a judge to play, to pay a billion dollars, uh, in, in damages because of comments he allegedly made regarding the, um, the, the shooting massacre at uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School. We're just coming up on the ninth anniversary, actually, in a couple days. Uh, but one has nothing to do with the other, correct? One has absolutely nothing to do with the other. We'll get to the fact that people are scared of Alex Jones or they hate him for reasons that are wrong that you will never be able to convince them are wrong. They think people think he has said things that he hasn't said. They think he's done things he hasn't done. And they think he was booted from Twitter for the statements that he made or allegedly made about the Sandy Hook uh, massacre, which is also wrong. He was booted from Twitter in concert. And people talk about conspiracy theories. A group of people conspired to yeet Alex Jones from social media uh, at the same time. And they all had to fabricate their own pretexts. Twitter came out and said, uh, we're going to go back and reassess three things that he put on Twitter. Basically, there was a video of a kid being thrown to the ground. I don't know what the video was, but if if violent videos on Twitter get you booted, well, there'll be very few people left on Twitter, or at least there'll be a lot of people booted from Twitter immediately. The second thing was a video in which he was talking about fighting against the government uh, politically, time to rise up, which the lawyer, Vijay, whatever her name is, on uh, Joe Rogan said, we interpreted that to be a violent call to action. Yeah, I think he and, may have crossed. Uh, sorry, uh, Aviva, I think he may have crossed the line there a little bit. I mean, he was talking about, you know, um, your, you know, uh, we will use battle, every battle rifles. I think he said yeah, battle, battle rifles, and he mentioned every means, uh, legal and criminal. I think he may have he, crossed he, the line there. <laughs> Whether or not that, I mean, if, if that's as bad as it gets, I mean, when you have people like Maxine Waters calling for harassment True. in their faces, I mean, it, I, I, the wording of it was peculiar because he did say political um, and then threw in the word. It, OK, fine. You, you, it, it, that'll be one strike if that's the yeah, if that's the word of it. Yeah. The third one, which was the one that got him booted, was um, this video of him purportedly accosting. Oliver Darcy, who, who's the, you know, uh, Brian Stetler's sidekick on CNN in the halls of Congress. It was a nine or 10 minute video. I posted the actual video to, to Twitter and to Rumble and to YouTube so that people could know this is the video that they said was harassment, where he was saying Oliver Darcy's got eyes of a rat. He smells like something that crawled out of a, out of a, a possum that crawled out of an animal. I mean, it was funny. It was, <laughs> it, it was, was juvenile and childish. And he was uh, taking him to task for um, censorship. Yes, for going after his his sponsors, for trying to get him censored on social media platforms. And look, it, it, whether or not it was childish, that's it's it's if that's the worst of it um, and that gets you kicked off of social media, there has been exponentially worse by many others that goes unnoticed. So uh, that was what got him booted from from Twitter. And then you had Jack Dorsey and Vijay God, I think is her name, the lawyer saying, yeah, well, under the context, we took that to be bullying and harassment and kicked off Alex Jones. It just so happens that it was at the exact same time he was basically unplatformed, de- unpersoned from everywhere else. But people think it's because of what he said about Sandy Hook. And people also don't even know or understand what he did and did not say about Sandy Hook. Uh, people are under the impression that he spent years campaigning to slander the parents, that he spent years spreading lies and disinformation. He said uh, a couple of uh, uh, objectively false and objectively hurtful things that crisis actors i could see them they were laughing at one point and then they start switching to crying early on entertaining ideas from callers that it was either a setup a hoax um 
uh, a false flag. But he spent years recognizing it happened, referred to them as angels who got murdered. And I mean, whatever he may or may not have said, he spoke of it for like 16 to 22 minutes of airtime. If I got to jump in here, uh, go for the interruption. We'll take a quick time. I'll come back. Viva Fry and uh, talking about Alex Jones reinstated on X or Twitter, if you would rather back with more of our conversation in three minutes. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. Just a quick programming note for tomorrow. John Carpe will be here, founder, president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. We'll talk about this $290 million lawsuit against Freedom Convoy uh, participants, uh, which he says designed to uh, silence political dissent or silence free expression. And I would agree with that. It seems to be a kind of a theme going around as we continue to delve into uh, the reinstatement of Alex Jones and uh, Infowars on X. Uh, Elon Musk basically bending to the will of the people said, uh, you know, let's do Vox Populi. How do you vote? Should he be reinstated? And the people said 70 percent to 30 percent. Yes. And uh, he was good to his words. So Alex Jones back on Twitter. That's according to the left, the end of the world. Uh, he's the most dangerous man on the planet. And um, David Freiheit, Viva Fry here, uh, explaining why he thinks this is a victory for f- freedom uh, of, of speech and the First Amendment, uh, instead of disabusing some of the notions that uh, um, that Alex Jones um, was was kicked off Twitter because of his um, statements on the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, which is not true. None of those three strikes had anything to do with his statements about uh, Sandy Hook. Uh, and now we're just kind of well, we're kind of getting into that whole um, billion dollar settlement he was ordered to pay for things that he allegedly said or allegedly did. Um, and as you say in the statement, they said for years, you know, he was for years he was talking about Sandy Hook. Um, you, as you pointed out, he maybe talked about it for what, a total of 16 or 20 minutes over the course of several years? Several years. And what? And it's going to sound like I'm being an apologist. I, I'm just being a realist who understands what happened. When they accuse Alex Jones of being responsible for the harassment against the family, they were being harassed before Alex Jones even covered it. The only reason the story got to his attention was because it was already gaining traction in terms of conspiracy theories. The families were already being harassed prior to Jones even becoming aware of the story. Um, and people also have to understand he never had a trial uh, declaring him liable. He was found liable by default verdict. So they never had a trial where they showed evidence of damages. They never had a trial where they got past evidentiary rules, statute of limitations issues, because there were many in that case. They declared him liable by default verdict. And then the only trial that they had was on the damages, wherein he was ordered to pay a billion dollars in damages. By way of example, he was ordered to pay 90 million dollars in damages to the FBI agent. The FBI agent didn't have any family killed in the incident, didn't have any kids involved. The FBI was agent was one of the first responders, and he was complaining about harassment, which he was getting anyhow, not because of Alex Jones, but he was ordered to he was he was ordered to receive ninety million dollars because of defamation. So it was a sham trial. It wasn't even a trial. It's an outright injustice that people have justified to themselves because they think they hate Alex Jones. And the bottom line is, if being wrong because he did say certain things that were objectively wrong, apologize and retracted. But if that is the the, the standard. Brian Stetler, Rachel Maddow, 
uh, New York Times posting false information over and over again, saying that Brian Sicknick, the January 6th officer, was beaten to death by a mob of Trump supporters. Billion dollars deplatformed. Maxine Waters calling for harassment. AOC raising bail monies to get out violent protesters. They should all be booted. But this is not about any principle of freedom of uh, freedom of speech. It's not about any form of retribution. It's about politicizing and punishing uh, ideological adversaries who run counter to the narrative and who are very popular at doing it. Um, can Alex Jones appeal in a civil case? Oh, like he, that? He's, he's appealing all of it. I mean, it's, it's just a question of whether or not the higher courts are going to are going to take it. Um, the, the, the judgment is so outlandish. The, pro- the process was such a fundamental violation of all rules of justice, a default verdict for allegedly failing to respect discovery obligations. And they declare mean? him. I mean, like, mean? It means if they said uh, pr- provide documents in discovery, in, in uh, depositions, provide documents, give us a list of your videos that you posted on Sandy Hook. And he says, I don't even have access to them. You shut me out of Facebook, Google, all these things. I can't access them. And then they say, oh, you didn't provide us a list. So you defaulted on discovery obligations. So we're rendering a, a, a finding of liability by default. No evidence is made, even in, in law, typically. I'll say this from the, Canadian, the Quebec perspective. Even if they're going to say you're foreclosed from pleading as a defendant, you've screwed up, you've, you've lied, you've destroyed evidence, you don't get to present a defense, the plaintiffs still have to present their case as if there's a, a, an invisible defendant, but they still have to present their case. They right, still right. have to show why the statute of limitations has not been breached. They still have to show that they actually sustained damages, that they actually had you know, reputations tarnished because of Alex Jones and that the harassment was because of Alex Jones and not because of third parties. They just the judge activist judges just declared, oh, we declare you in default in Connecticut, by the way. So we're going to default you in Texas and then we'll hold a trial in quotes on the quantum. You're already guilty. Now it's a question of how guilty. And I was there when they were selecting jury. In Austin, they were priming the jury to see who's going to be amenable to issuing an outrageous quantum on the damages. Well, it seems like um, he's got a lot, uh, a lot to object to on appeal. Um, It's 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 a fundamental injustice, but people don't care because they think they hate him. What they're doing with Trump, fundamental injustice that desecrates the pillars of a society of of, of a civilized society where the legal system works. But they justify it because they think they hate the person so much. Um, but it, it's it's a preposterous joke to be uh, to found liable by default verdict, and the plaintiffs don't even have to prove their case. So do you think uh, Elon Musk reinstating Alex Jones? Well, he doesn't seem to care about the sponsors. He's told them to go fly a kite. Um, But do you think that this will further, I don't know, um, endanger Elon Musk's position with with X or? I don't you know, at one point in time, I would have said yes. But I think people, especially now that uh, Alex gets back on and people understand what went down the first time. I think even reasonable people can now say I was misinformed and this was a joke to begin with. Um, I don't think they're going to come after him for anything related to Alex Jones. And by the way, I think he was going to let Alex Jones back on regardless of that of that vote. But it just happened to turn out the right way. Um, so I don't I don't think it's going to have any more of, a, of an impact. I, Alex Jones does not put out offensive content, save and except for the a, a couple of stupid things he said about Sandy Hook. There's you got Hamas leaders on Twitter. You've got Iranian leaders on Twitter and these these snowflake hypocrite lefties, Democrats 
they're fine with that. But Alex Jones comes on and it's the end of the world. They've, they've got it. They've, they've got it. It, it bass backwards, as we say for, for radio. And they are a bunch of unprincipled hypocrites to, to think that Alex Jones there is the end of the world. But, you know, actual terrorist leaders can have Twitter accounts. Uh, first sort of First Amendment and free speech issues aside. Um, are you happy that Alex Jones is has access uh, to that platform with his information? Uh, it's a thousand percent. Yes. Alex Jones, in as much as he's been wrong about certain things and, and by and large, it's limited to some of the statements he made about Sandy Hook. He's been exponentially less wrong than CNN, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, Brian Stetler, the whole lot of them. He's been exponentially less wrong than them. Uh, if we're going back to the populist uh, revolution that was Trump's first election in 2016, we're seeing some common denominators here. A lot of people attributed Trump's victory to Alex Jones's grassroots support, um, not an outright endorsement, but, you know, his his reach. That reach is coming back right now at a, at a pivotal time when I, I hope people are really beginning to understand the judicial injustice. It's, it's, it's fascism in its purest form, what we're witnessing right now. And so I don't think he could have come back at a better time. Yeah, I agree that um, 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 Alex Jones helped galvanize the base for, for Trump in much the same way that Tucker Carlson does. And of course, Tucker Carlson fired from Fox News. We never got really the answer there. But was that about getting him off of the uh, getting him off Fox uh, just in time for the 2024 election and in the same maybe the same reason uh, that billion dollar uh, settlement came down against um, Alex Jones kicking him off Twitter. Is that a, it was it all about in both cases, 2024? Uh, people can disagree with my assessment. I, you know, it, some people hypothesize that it might have been more related to Pfizer, where, you know, Tucker Carlson had given a pretty damning uh, condemnation of Fox's affiliation or dependence on pharma advertising dollars. But I now have come to believe it's it's about 2024. They got rid of Dan or Dan Bongino was unable to renew his contract. He's another great populist voice with one of the most popular uh, live streams on on Rumble. Uh, Tucker Carlson. It's about controlling the narrative for 2024 and silencing the populist voices, which can no longer be silenced. And, and um, it, it's an all out it's an all out war. I mean, they, they, they want to shut people up and shut people down prior to 2024. Viva Fry on Rumble, YouTube and, of course, Viva Barnes Law dot locals dot com. What's coming up on uh, the next program? Oh, I don't know. You say same old stuff watching the world burn, but um, I got some good stuff coming up. It's going to be some good guests. Uh, but, the, you know, the standard daily live streams where I try to make sense of a world on fire. David Freiheit, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you very much. Have a good one. All right. That's it for me. My thanks to Jody Jacob and Mike Carefalitis. I will be back tomorrow to do it all over again. God willing, I'll speak with you at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM.